You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Daniel Howitt's interview with the composer for Candyman, Robert Ike Aubrey Lowe. Candyman. The urban legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. Who would do that? Candyman. 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 Well, we're still alive. <laughs> Let's go. Trina, you broke the door. really connected to this neighborhood. Cabrini Green. It was the projects. I just moved in around the corner. The old candy factory. I'm an artist. You look up a candy man. He's the monster that's part of this neighborhood. Why are you drawn to this? I'm hoping to spread the story all about Candyman. The mirror invites you to summon him. You should say his name. I dare you. Candyman. 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 Don't. Don't say that. Candyman. I think I made a mistake. I brought him back. Something's happening to me. He had a purpose for you to be another one of his terrible stories. I guess he found me. I am the writing on the wall. The sweet smell of blood. for Candyman. I'm excited to dive in. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I, I understand that you used to live just four blocks from Cabrini Green where, where Candyman takes place. Is that a coincidence or, or were you brought on? Is that part of a reason that you were brought onto this project? No, uh, they were unaware that I lived in. I, I always say four blocks, but it's probably, it was like four to six blocks. Some, but in the vicinity, I lived very close to the, the housing project. Um, wow. No, uh, Monkey Paw and Nia had no idea that I, I don't even remember if they were aware that I lived in Chicago um, initially, but anyhow, uh, yeah, that was, it was uh, just happenstance wow. that that happened to be the case. Yeah. And then how did that impact, obviously you knew that when you were brought on. So how did that uh, impact your excitement for the project or the way you kind of envisioned uh, what your score for this might be in those early stages? Um, I think, you know, um, due to the fact that I did have a relationship with the city and uh, understood Cabrini Green, um, you know, and also even uh, growing up, you know, um, 
watching television, uh, a show like Good Times was set uh, in Cabrini Green. So, you know, there, there, there was already a, a sort of relationship there as far as my, my own makeup and the relationship to the city itself. Um, I was also very excited due to the fact that I was such a big fan of the original film uh, by Bernard Rose. And also, you know, uh, was a huge fan of Clive Barker's work at the time and still, I still am. Um, so, I don't know, I guess it was, it was very exciting for me to sort of investigate what that meant um, and sort of surveying that particular psychic energy um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's great. That's great. Well, tell me about those, those early conversations. Tell me about working with uh, Nia DaCosta. You know, what, what were those first conversations like as she described what she was looking for in the score for Candyman and, and how you guys worked together? Um, I think, you know, I was approached uh, by the production um, to see if I had an interest in doing the film because they were familiar with my work. So I think out of the gate, they already had an inkling of what they wanted due to my existing body of work. <clears throat> so the conversations that we had um, were really about um, tone. Uh, there were conversations back and forth about about the legacy of the film, about the legacy of the original score by Philip Glass. Um, and so one thing for me that I really wanted to try to stay away from was to make too many overt references to the original score. Um, one thing for me is, is with, when you are investigating an, an idea that has already existed in the world, uh, but coming at it from a different perspective, I think it should obviously be able to stand on its own uh, as an individual work. So I wanted to make sure that I didn't lean too heavily into what had existed before due to the fact that I thought that I would be able to bring not only my own voice um, to this project and to be able to build a world that existed within the universe of the story while um, sort, of, sort of casting out this, the, uh, um, this the, uh, sound that was, was not necessarily maybe tangentially related to the original and had nods to it, but really existed within my own voice as my own work. And you've talked a lot about playing with illusion mm -hmm. um, and even the idea of like mirrors uh, for this score. Uh, so tell me more about how you describe the sound that you wanted to create for Candyman um, and you know, what, what feelings you wanted to evoke? Well, so 
there were a number of intentions that I brought to the table initially um, after I had really sat down, read the script, had conversations with uh, with Nia and Ian um, Cooper, the producer on the film, about what it was I wanted to be able to bring to the project. And, and that was one, of course, investigating the, the original film and the legacy of the film itself and the score. Um, Clive Barker's a larger cinematic universe um, because I think it does tie in. Um, uh, to be able to play with sound in a way that made things uneasy or almost, you know, at times I would describe it as almost a seasickness. Um, I wanted to be able to play with sound in a way in which I could excite the ear uh, even just in a stereo field, not even not even in a in a in a surround field, to be able to sort of compact it into uh, a stereo field in, in in which the the ear was excited by these psychoacoustic events, being able to use um, uh, electronics and synthesizers as well as acoustic instruments, and play with what that meant sonically and to be able to create a, a sonic palette in which I was able to uh, trick one's ear and in, in a way that they wouldn't be able to, to discern, oh, well, that's definitely a cello or that's definitely a synthesizer or that's definitely a voice. I really wanted to play around with a lot of that. Um, voice was also something that was very big um, in the context of the score, not only the conversations that Nia and I had had about the, 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 the multiplicity of voices um, and the stories throughout the folklore um, that was attached to, to the film. Um, but, you know, the, the voice is my first instrument and I really like the, you know, it's such it's such an interesting and unique and malleable instrument. I wanted to be able to play around with the human voice and make it into something that you wouldn't be able to discern necessarily as that thing. And so then again, you have this 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 push and pull with with reality and fantasy and what is happening in real time and what is happening in a dream state or a hypnagogic state, you know, so I, I, that's something that I was, it was really important to me to be able to play around with. Hey, hey there. there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. As you're playing around or as you're approaching creating the tracks, where do you begin? Uh, with, with a lot of film scores, you have traditional strings and, tra- you know, clearly defined melodies mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but you're, you know, I understand that you, you were recording sound effects and, and vocalizations on set as well. Mm-hmm. So where, where do you kind of begin to merge this all together? Well, um, the field recordings that I did on set um, that was another intention that I had brought to the table very early on because I wanted to be able to um, capture the the sound of the actual locations or people on those locations and uh, manipulate those in a way that I could make them into textural elements that would would uh, live within the body of the score and and those textural elements are also carrying through the psychic energy of the actual space so thinking about things in a very three-dimensional way i wanted to yeah that's it really be able to to create that world and and, and inside of that concept of, of world building um i really wanted to have things that really happen in real time in those spaces and then be able to manipulate those and then give them a new life and a new energy. As you're approaching those field recordings, how much did you know uh, of what you wanted, you know, or was it really discovering that when you showed up? It was, it was, I, I was really about taking in as much as I could and then surveying that and, and making informed decisions on what particular sounds I wanted to use, or um, if there were any sort of uh, tonalities or, or textures inside of those sounds, and then be able to stretch and manipulate those things. You know, I have a very aleatoric process, and so I really like to involve chance in the way that I compose because that also gives me a window into being able to consider things that I may not have initially considered, um, which I think ultimately can make for a a stronger work and a more complex landscape. Because your work does so blend sound design with music as well, how much collaboration did you have with the sound team on the film, uh, especially when it comes to like mixing the the final the final film was there any collaboration there there was there we uh there were conversations that i had with the sound mixer and um we had some really nice conversations about you know what it all meant and and i i really wanted to be able to provide him with enough uh material that 
in in the the case of any sort of sound design like basically you know when i talk about world building or like creating these landscapes it's it's about creating a language which takes time and so the fact that i started working on ideas off of conversations and reading the script before anything had been shot, before location scouting was done, before casting was finished. It was it was an, an allowance for me to be able to provide uh, sonic information that Nia could have in her ear as she was shooting the film. And then vice versa, I was really keen to be on location because I wanted to be witness to how she directed, how she was moving in real time. And so one informed the other. And it's, it's, it's all about this idea of a true collaboration, you know. And I wanted to be able to provide the most complex and most expanded sonic landscape that could itself be a character within the landscape of the film um, for her and to make sure that her vision was, uh, I was able to help carry her vision through to the, the finish line. You've spoken before about how you love to keep making and tweaking and playing around with your work. I, I wrote a quote from you. I, I really like the idea of a work in progress. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously, at a certain point, the film's got to be printed. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's got to be finalized. How do you know when to step away and 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 be done? Um, I think you know, I I do like to to play around with things, and I do like to take time with things. But I also understand that things are not perfect and so I don't strive for that perfection I don't it's not something that I'm chasing uh, generally the first idea is the freshest and most interesting so I try to keep it as close to the start as I can but things will change in an edit things will change through conversation um, and in that moment, it's interesting for me because it does give me time to reconsider the things that I've done and say, okay, well, I was coming at it from this perspective and I was thinking about it in this way, but now that I've had a conversation with, with, with Nia or the, with any director, um, they know what my position is and, and, and what my what the context is for what I'm providing, and then they are giving me the context for what they are looking to find. And so you sort of meet in the middle, or maybe the, the first time out is the most interesting thing. And then, you know, you, you go through something, you work it through, it turns out that it's it was best the way that it was, and it, it's it's really about playing around with things and 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 I guess I know it's done when it's done because I can trust my intuition, 
And that's something that I think is really important, being able to trust one's own intuition and know when something is good and when something is right or when something is overworked, you know? That's really good. You've done plenty of work on films and on scores, but this is one of your first credits as a, as a solo composer. Um, mm-hmm. And you've just been shortlisted for an Academy Award. Yeah. How, do, how does it feel to be recognized in that way? I mean, I think it's nice. Uh, it's not something that I was expecting. Um, I am more than happy that the response to this particular score has been what it's been. Um, it's not a conventional score. Um, it's not arrived at in any sort of a conventional way. And I like that fact that people are are compelled to really look at what it is and, and how it got to be where it was. Um, which, you know, is, is hopeful for me, you know, because conventional film scoring, there's nothing wrong with it necessarily. But for me, it's always more interesting to be able to push the boat out and try new things and, 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 and expand my own vernacular and, and, you know, try to create new vocabularies because it's an artistic process. So why would you not want to do that? That's great. Well, I, I mean, I, I was also going to ask you, um, I'm always interested to hear from professionals in the industry, you know, any peers that you have been impressed by? Are there, are there modern film, film scores or composers that, that you've been really taken by? Maybe, maybe some favorite scores from the last year? Um, actually, so the, the, the score for the film Censor by Prano Bailey Bond, uh, the, the composer Emily Levinese Ferrouche, uh, her score for Censor was really fantastic. Um, that's, that's, that was a big one for me that, that I, I really, really enjoyed. Um, Mika Levy's score for Zola, um, I think is really great. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. I've been so bogged down with work on my this end that I, I haven't been able to really pay a ton of attention to scores, nor have I seen a, a, a ton of film. Oh, actually, Natalie Holt's score for the, the television series Loki was fantastic. It was so good. And I, there, it, you know, there, there were like little funny things in there, like these Wagnerian nods, uh, which, you know, sort of ties into this, uh, the mythology, which I thought was really funny. Um, that one was an excellent score. Um, yeah, I mean, but there's, there, there was a lot that I heard. Um, what was the one? Maybe it was Clint Manziel's score for uh, In the Earth. What um, that one I liked. Uh, oh gosh, uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting this. Aiko Ishibashi's score for Drive My Car. It's a beautiful score. Um, yeah, Aiko Ishibashi is that was one of my favorites. Yeah, so good, so good. Well, Robert, I appreciate your time. Appreciate your work. I appreciate just you. bringing bringing a 
a unique voice to this world of, of film composing. You know, we don't often hear unique work like this. So I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I think it's, that's really nice. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll let you go. Congrats on your, uh, you've got an upcoming Sundance premiere. Uh, so I, I, you know, best of luck. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, that's, it's a really great film uh, by a uh, new filmmaker, Mariama Diallo. Uh, it's awesome. Very excited to see it. Well, best of luck with that premiere. Thanks. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interview with the composer for Candyman, Robert Ike Aubrey Lowe, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Candyman is currently shortlisted for Best Original Score at this year's Academy Awards and is available for your consideration of other categories as well. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.